0: Today we have a very interesting panel of some activists and leaders in the area of government transparency. And to lead us is the uh, senior editor covering technology at Atlantic.com. He was the blogger of Weird Science on Wired.com. He's won a number of awards. And he is a visiting scholar at the University of California at Berkeley Please welcome Alexis Medrigal.
1: Hi, thanks for joining us. I know we had a lot of tough competition, including a, a film session that we thought uh, everyone might attend. Um, so thanks for coming and sitting close and uh, for this intimate session here. Um, joined by uh, Vivek Kundra, he is the Chief Information Officer of the United States of America. Uh, previous to that, he was the Chief Technology Officer of Washington, D.C., where he gained a reputation as a really innovative uh, advocate for open government. Um, Next to to him is uh, Craig Newmark. Um, He's a customer service representative for a company that he founded called Craigslist. And I don't know about you, but I have a lot to thank him for, including my apartment, 1982 Mercedes-Benz, and a lot of the crap that's sitting in our closet. Um, He's also a nerd, and he's on and self-described, and he wanted me to tell you that. Um, And he's on uh, the board of the Sunlight Foundation, which has been one of the most aggressive advocates uh, for government transparency uh, in the United States and across the world. Um, These two guys combined uh, provide an incredible opportunity for us to explore the idea of transparency. Um, And one thing that I think defines them both uh, is that they have been advocates of bipartisan transparency. I mean, this is an issue that at a time... uh, where we see uh, almost unprecedented rancor in Washington, um, we've got one issue that everyone can agree on, which is that we want to know what's happening in the government. Um, and the reason we want to know that is we want to improve the government. So I think uh, the first question
2: is, is that. Can meaningful transparency actually improve the government? Let's start with you, um Absolutely. We, we've seen evidence of that. And what I'd like to do is cite examples of where transparency has led to real results. And what's really important is to first define what transparency is. A lot of people think of transparency as a passive exercise where you just put up information and hope good things happen. Uh, Our view in the administration is that it's not just putting out information, but it's also enabling participation and collaboration in ways that have been structurally impossible before. If we go back to the agora uh, and we think about how the people used to petition their government, interact with their government, they would come to a public square. And they would interact with their government, socialize, conduct commerce. Now, through technology, what's happened is we've got unprecedented opportunities to engage people in ways that were structurally impossible. With a seat in front of your computer or on your mobile device. You have the ability now to engage in ways that were not possible before. At the local level, for example, in the District of Columbia, when we put out data, data feeds, and on top of that, what we decided to do was launch a competition called Apps for Democracy, what we saw very quickly was that the citizens in the district began to create solutions that served the community. Uh, from applications uh, that could be used in in our everyday lives that allowed people to see, based on where they were standing on their mobile device, where the closest train station was, and when the next train was coming in both directions, to transparency around procurements, to see who won which contract, uh, who was the government official that made that decision, which led to a level of accountability that wasn't there before. So shining light is one part of transparency. The other way to think about it is also, how do we look at it beyond just uh, the American people becoming watchdogs, but also innovators and contributing to a healthy, vibrant democracy? Uh,
3: context, uh, again, I, uh, I really am a nerd. Uh, please observe the banner on the way here where Bill Gates implores you to be nice to nerds because you may wind up working for us someday. And also, I do customer service for a living, which biases everything I look, because I'm always looking at things from the bottom up. And that means also I tend to be fairly simple-minded. In that spirit, transparency in government, to me, is about the government telling people what's going on. And that may mean telling people how long lines are when you're going through security in an airport. You know, the danger there is that it may show you how bad things are. Not so good, but the good thing about it is that you can get an app for that and see how bad things are at some time. And even better, when you see what's going on, then you have a chance of making things better. And in some cases, well, there's the whole accountability issue. On a larger scale, what uh, transparency is about is about governments across the country, and this is happening now, telling people you know, where they're spending money, how it's being used, who's getting the money. Because, you know, if you want to fix government, the deal is first you've got to tell people what's going on so they can follow the money, and then you can take it from there.
1: Um, I think the idea of transparency might be a little hazy for people. Um, Like what it actually means to have uh, technologically enabled uh, transparency in the government so I want to have Vivek maybe describe data.gov, which is a website that provides uh, now uh, over 150,000 government data feeds. And like, what actually is on there? Like, what are these data sets? And how does that turn people in America into innovators or watchdogs?
2: Sure, so we're actually now at over 270,000 uh, uh, raw it's data sets. Um, and uh, you know, if we unpack this issue in terms of the types of data sets, Some of these data sets are data sets that uh, lead to greater government accountability in terms of uh, what Craig was talking about. How does the United States government spend money um, agency by agency, bureau by bureau, and what are we spending that uh, money on? Other parts um, in terms of the data sets that are out there are data sets around, for example, the FAA uh, releasing a data set around times, uh, of, as far as flights are concerned, nationally, or data sets that have been released in the healthcare field that allow you to see what is the average rating of a particular hospital, how are people rating those hospitals, and what are the outcomes. To give you a concrete example of how that leads to um, the, the improvements in performance of government or putting information at the fingertips of the American people, We recently launched a a community health data initiative at HHS. And part of what we realized was there is very rich, valuable data that the United States government had, but it was locked in these databases that most people couldn't access. By releasing that data, by democratizing that data um, and launching a competition, what ended up happening was Bing took this data, and now if you go on Bing and do a search for a hospital, whether it's Georgetown Hospital or Shady Grove Hospital, immediately on that search result you see uh, what is the outcome of that hospital, how do people rate it in terms of their experience. Uh, Also, we saw within uh, literally days of launching data.gov, the Sunlight Foundation actually launched a competition called Apps for America, And there is a developer who created an application called flyontime.us, which allows you to not only see delays and arrival times at airports, but also crowdsourcing of information where the American people are tweeting what the wait times are at airports. So now people are using that information to make decisions when they should leave their home to go to the airport uh, so they don't miss their flight. Uh, The other aspects in terms of data.gov, we've got every aspect of government operations as far as data that's been democratized. But if we step back, the idea of democratizing data and what it can lead to, I would point to GPS and the decision that the Department of Defense made to release that data. All of a sudden, there was a whole new industry that was born to the point where now I can go to any town or city and navigate it by renting a $10 device at my car rental, uh, a local car rental store, or my iPhone. And if you think about the NIH, and the NIH releasing data around the human genome, which is leading to unbelievable innovations and breakthroughs in personalized medicine, that is the power of democratizing data.
3: Um, the deal here is that when you d- publish all this data, you are telling people again. What's going on with the uh, government? Now I'm in a pretty impatient human. I think we're off to a really good start. I do want to see more. But the fact of the matter is that this administration has exposed more about the way it really works than any government, as far as I could tell, in all of human history. Uh, You'll probably through the remainder of this session, you'll sense my frustration that the word on that is actually not getting out, that is, by exposing data, by also fixing a lot of business processes, by using the technologies of the private sector. A lot of things are being made to work in Washington, and no one's talking about it.
1: Greg, maybe oh, can you can give us, can I add oh. one yeah, more sure. thing to That's
2: <laughs> The other thing we've done is we've also released data around uh, over 400,000 records of who's visiting the White House. And now we've got uh, students at RPI that have actually created applications that show you who is being visited by whom and what policy issue is being debated and what was being covered by newspapers at the time of these visits. Uh, This is not something the government did because we don't have a monopoly on the best ideas. And another area is what we've done in terms of shining light on just government spending uh, in the IT space. We literally uh, put up the picture of every CIO in the government right next to the IT project they're responsible for and how it's performing in terms of cost schedule. And as a result of that, we announced last week a very aggressive measure to terminate projects that are not uh, producing dividends for the American people and halt those initiatives that need to be de de-scoped to make sure that we can turn around these investments.
3: In uh, my overly simplistic terms, what we're talking about is delivering actual value for the taxpayer dollar. You know, which is nice.
1: Um, Craig, maybe you can give us a couple of... Yeah, true, it is. Um, a couple of examples of uh, these, like, small, mundane things okay. that are changing within the government as a result of transparency.
3: That's right. As, as I enter my declining years, and uh, as a customer service rep, I'm more and more interested in the small things that help us every day, as well as the big, you know, government improvement issues. There's stuff like... Uh, Well, back uh, home, I can run an app which tells me when the next train or bus is coming. Uh, That's pretty good, and actually I really do use that. I use variants of it in other cities like New York. On the other hand, um, well, in San Francisco and New York and other cities, there are these 311 programs, which basically, when something goes wrong with city government or you need to know how to do something, you can report it. Even better, and again, forgive the cliche, but there really is an app for that. Uh, Something I've done is I've used something called C-Click-Fix. What I've done, let's say, for a broken uh, parking meter, is I get the camera out, I take a photo, it's geotagged, you know, because i got the GPS running. Uh, I type in a few words of what's the problem, hit submit, and then it goes to the city for repair. And, you know, I've actually got responses, You know, my focus is always uh, public transportation, it seems, because I dislike getting in the car. And the deal is, we are seeing genuine incremental improvements in our lives because of the way governments, local, state, and federal, are telling us what's going on. And then my fellow nerds can write applications which actually present that data to us in a way that makes sense. I only wish I was young again and can write code. Um, That's not just a joke, right. <laughs> so we talked a little bit about some of the nitty-gritty
1: kind of details. If we take a step back, can transparency, in particular, uh particularly data releases uh, and the types of things that technology and massive storage uh, enable, can they restore trust in government, or do people just distrust the data no matter how much you give them?
2: Well, well I think, uh, you know, as the president has said, it is vital... Uh, for for, for the government to restore this trust with the American people and the way to do it is to be transparent in terms of the operations of the government. Uh, So in some cases, putting out data, putting out information, being more transparent shines light on how things are not working. But I think that's okay because we'll never address these problems unless we confront them head on. And that's part of what we took on. So if we look at usspending.gov, for example, not all the data is necessarily perfect. But we have the unique ability now to actually go online and see who won which contract, how it was awarded, whether it was competitive or not, and a timeline of companies that are winning these contracts. Is the data 100% perfect in all the cases? Um, Absolutely not. But that's a work in progress that's going to take years, and it requires on the back end, fixing some of the systems and processes within the government. But I think it is vital uh, in any relationship to be transparent and open, first and foremost, to build and engender trust. Uh,
3: My deal is that I see a lot of good things happening already, happening right now. People aren't hearing about them. One reason I'm up, up here is to basically to stand up For people doing good work to testify on their behalf because a lot of good stuff is going on right now. More directly, uh, I'm way out of my depth in Washington, but I now spend a little time on Capitol Hill talking to the people behind the Transparency Caucus, you know, a bunch of people in Congress who are (coughs) trying to make this happen in a genuinely bipartisan way. And, you know, the message is good because, you know, I'm not important enough to typically talk to the congressmen. My people are the staffers, the grassroots, the rank and file. You know, And they're pretty passionately committed to this. So I'm trying to do what I can to help them with this. And in doing so, maybe dispel some of the uh, toxic atmosphere you know, that we hear about in Washington these days. The deal is if you're a young staffer there, you're sure you don't, sure don't want to go through another 30 years of this. To this end, I'm even doing things like uh, helping Wikipedia not be a partisan battleground. Without going off on the tangent, uh, I'm uh, involved with customer service for a Biography of Living Persons, and if you have a bio on Wikipedia and you get attacked by bad guys, call me.
1: Um, Craig, I actually want to talk about, you've written uh, on the Huffington Post about government um, as a customer service uh, enterprise. And I was wondering, what can, what can the government, I mean, what can um, government officials learn from your work at Craigslist doing customer
3: service on the front lines of the company that you founded? Uh, you start with the notion that you want to treat people like you want to be treated. And then, uh, you know, we've all been in situations where we've had uh, bad customer service and then, if you 're in a position where you do provide customer service either directly or maybe indirectly, maybe several levels removed, think about the situation you 've been in and try to do better with that to that end you know I 'm talking with people, say, at the Federal Web Managers Council looking at websites, asking, "Are they doing the job? Are they telling people what they want to tell? Can you, within the constraints of uh, you know law and regulation and policy, can you Tell people what they need to know. Can you help them out? And that's you know that's the mundane way of putting it, but that's the gist of things. Reminding people in government that you know the people you serve, your cust- your citizens, are customers. You should treat them as such. Thinking about how you want to be treated. Frankly, the best success in this regards has been from uh, the state of Georgia, where there's this guy uh, Joe Doyle, who's running this program. The theme of which is people should treat each other as people, and oddly enough, it's uh, working. Part of it is recognizing that uh, you know state employees, federal employees, whatever, you know they know what's going on, and they they you know they need a way to tell the boss what's going on, and they need to tell the boss how to make things better, and you know that thing is happening at multiple levels of government, particularly in Veterans Affairs in Washington, and also at HHS. I know those two because I'm uh, directly involved with those two.
1: Are there times, uh, you know, it's easy, I think, in Silicon Valley for everyone to kind of talk the talk about, uh, about transparency and openness. But in Washington, there's been uh, a longstanding more need-to-know type relationship with information. Are there times when, when being open and being transparent is actually going to be counterproductive or even destructive?
2: Well, well, I think um, you have to look at it on a case-by-case basis, right? But what's really important is to change the default setting so that the default isn't closed, opaque, and secretive. The default setting should be open, transparent, and participatory. And against that filter, then, decide whether uh, the information or the, the processes that are being made transparent, do they in any way harm national security? Uh, you don't want to make that information available, obviously. Do they in any way um, harm the privacy of the American people? For example, when it comes to healthcare, you could release information at a state level, um, and there are no consequences. But, but if you release it at a zip code level, and especially in the rural parts of the country, uh, you may be able to start beginning the process of identifying individuals. So there's a balance in terms of um, how we want to be transparent, open, participatory, but at the same time, make sure that we're protecting the privacy of the American people and obviously national security. But what we've begun in terms of the process is this fundamental shift in the default setting of the government. Craig has a, a great way of describing this.
3: Well, I don't know how great and frankly, uh, like many of the uh, things which I say which may seem smart, I've stolen from someone else. And now I'd like to steal something from Jeff Jarvis, who says, yeah, transparency is about uh, telling people what's going on. You know, that should be the default. You should normally tell people what's going on unless you're going to be really stupid about it. For example, in the federal government, you may not want to tell people how to build a nuclear weapon. That would, again, not be nice. Um, Sometimes you don't want to disclose something because it would breach someone's privacy. Again, uh, putting court records online, people were doing that. Great idea. Good thing for the legal system. But sometimes there have been cases where lawyers forgot to redact people's social security numbers. Not so good. There's a whole bunch of other things, again, involved with privacy, security. Like, you know, if you're helping the cops out, or if you're a cop involved in an ongoing discussion you know, or investigation, you don't want to be very transparent about that. And sometimes you've got to be careful, too, about what you say because sometimes you don't want to disclose something which a bad person can build a lie about and thereby damage whatever good work you're trying to do. This applies not only to government but really to everything. Again, you do want to tell people what's going on, but you don't want to be stupid about it. You don't want to breach security in some real way. You don't want to, uh, you know, you don't want to breach anyone's uh, privacy. And remember, people do have private lives, so you've got to make a balance about all this. It's sometimes tough. Sometimes doing the right thing is really tough, and sometimes there is no answer. But the deal is that, again, you know, you don't want to breach anyone's privacy. You don't want to breach anyone's security. Sometimes lives really are at stake.
1: Um, as a reporter, Vec, I've, you know, found myself running up against many different uh, agencies of the federal government and found it difficult to extract um, either the information I wanted or sort of all of the data behind the, the kind of basic information that I was looking for. And I've oftentimes wondered, I mean, how much of the sort of closed nature of, of some government operations um, is technical in nature and how much is sort of built into the culture of, the, of those government institutions?
2: Well, well, I think it's a a little bit of both, right? So so if we think about the technology gap between the private sector and the public sector, and if I can simplify it, just in a very simple um, area, which is USA.gov, which is supposed to be the central place for the American people to come to access government services. That website was launched a decade ago, and there weren't any significant improvements made. Last week... We just announced that um, we're, we've fundamentally re-engineered that platform to close the gap between what the American people expect from their government because in their everyday lives, uh, they know it's very easy to go online and make a reservation on open table or book their airline ticket um, or buy a book and have it uh, delivered within a day or two. Yet when they deal with their government, they're confronted with holding on the phone, waiting in line, or sending in a paper form. So one of the things we talk about that is in our day-to-day lives, what we see in the private sector is a culture of there's an app for that, where in the government, you have a culture of there's a form for that. And that's one of the big challenges we're confronting. And part of the problem um, is that the investments we've made, unfortunately, in technology, have not produced the dividends. And also, the government has thought for far too long that it's so special that it has to build something that's custom, and uh, it has to own all that infrastructure. And what we're trying to figure out now is how do we leverage some of the more common technologies that are out there and inject them into the public sector? That's why there's a huge push as you look at our tech tech agenda around cloud computing and initiatives like data.gov, the IT dashboard. Uh, But the reality is the United States government is made up of over 12,000 systems. Uh, We spend approximately $80 billion annually on information technology, and some of these agencies are operating on 30-year-old systems that run on COBOL. So there is a reality a programming language. The programming language. So there, there is a reality in terms of a huge gap between the investments we're making um, and how we make those investments. So DOD spent one billion dollars in twelve years on an integrated human resource system that ended up failing. Uh, and we have to start all over again. So those are some of the challenges that we confront. Uh, But part of what we're trying to do is move towards an environment where we're much more agile. We're using lighter weight technologies. We're making sure that customers are part of these solutions, that they're not brought in at the very, very end of the process. And also making sure that when we're designing these solutions, they're not designed for the mindset of government employees, for the bureaucracy, but actually for the people that they're supposed to serve.
3: I've been, uh, like I say, spending some time in Washington, which is possibly the best example of anyone being a fish out of water. And I see the same uh, resistance to change, the same kind of cultural inertia, you see in any large group. This applies, like I spent 17 years at IBM, you know, and I worked with the GM when I was part of that. Beyond that, um, there's the problem in a way that sometimes uh, when you're in government and very visible, you know, there are parties out there who may not have the best interests of the government or the best interests of the American people in mind, and they will try to launch a disinformation attacks, you know, spinning a story that may be totally false, but they can sell it to the press. And that's what a lot of people in government agencies and also, for that matter, NGOs, nonprofits in Washington, this is a part of the reason for a lot of that cultural inertia. The deal is that... Uh, You know, there are bad people out there who will seek to disinform, attacking government or nonprofits or whatever. And, you know, they're scared of this. And one reason is because the pace of disinformation attacks, AstroTurf, has picked up a lot. And one of the reasons I spend time in Washington is working with people to figure out how to build what I am now calling the immune system of democracy with a lot of fact-checking, transparency exposing what's going on, and uh, that's part of uh, what I'll be doing. I mean, this is part of my own idea of public service, helping people who are doing good things and helping defend them against that kind of attack. And I'd like to now say that in talking about the immune system of democracy is where I'm now premiering that term. <laughs> and I'd like to make that, say that in a funnier way, but I can't think of it.
1: Um. I'm interested, I mean, part of it is also the immune system of the government itself, right? I mean, how important is uh, transparency within the government? Because it seems like with most large organizations, like, the left hand rarely knows what the right hand is doing, whether that's, like, Sony or that's, like, you know, NASA. Oftentimes it's very difficult for information to flow around uh, any, any kind of organization. Uh, what's happening at the, at the federal level to make those information flow uh, processes better,
2: Well, so there's a lot of work happening uh, in in this space uh, where we're investing heavily on making sure that we're thinking about things horizontally and not just vertically. Because, unfortunately, what's happened as a result of uh, how agencies get funded, it happens in silos, bureau by bureau. Uh, Yet, when we think about technology and transparency, it's most effective horizontally. As part of the open government directive uh, that was launched, One of the things we did is we created an open government council within the uh, public sector. And now every agency is represented as part of this uh, council. And uh, the function of information sharing, deploying platforms uh, that enable enable greater transparency across uh, bureaus and agencies, and making sure that uh, we're investing in solutions that are horizontal in nature is uh, where we're headed. Uh, But the the very act of bringing everyone together was fascinating. Magic began to happen because you suddenly saw the Department of Defense and the VA talking to each other and saying, well, you know what? How do we integrate our electronic health records? Why do we have to think about these as siloed systems? Because at the end of the day, uh, the veterans and the soldiers in the field benefit from that greater integration from that greater transparency amongst those two agencies. And that's happening across the board, and as part of the open government directive, agencies uh, have made publicly available their open government plans that outline uh, a number of these initiatives. Yeah. Do you want to talk more about that? Well,
3: the deal is that I, again, with any big organization, it's really common for different parts in a, of a, a bureaucracy you know, for, for, to just not talk to each other. That's true of NGOs, governments, uh, again, IBM when I was there. This is just kind of a normal, the, uh, the ways things work. And yet I see people in Washington, people who are actually genuinely inspired by the open government stuff to actually start crossing uh, boundaries and talking to each other. The Federal Web Managers Council is uh, is a big part of that. And those are folks that I'll talk to in Washington. And so within the bureaucracy even, uh, or on Capitol Hill again, people wanna talk with each other, and sometimes they just need the right excuse or a vehicle for doing that. Uh, Part of my job in Washington, well, there's an unfair joke which says that Washington is Hollywood for ugly people. And that's, you know, that's not, uh, if I was a British comic, I would say, well, that's not entirely true. But in any case, my job is to bring the glamor to Washington getting people sometimes on different sides of the aisle to talk with each other. And I find myself in the completely surreal position of doing some shuttle diplomacy, uh, like when it comes to transparency, or sometimes departments in terms of uh, areas where people just haven't wanted to work with each other. So the deal is things are happening, people are doing things in different ways, and if they need to use me as a, even as an oddity, I'm up for that. I mean, I'm not exactly the Angelina Jolie of open government. You know, I'm more like the George Costanza. Or more honestly, the Forrest Gump.
1: I was actually hoping this would work kind of like a buddy comedy. Uh, and I'm glad finally yeah, you uh, guys Craig, Craig's warming up. Yeah. yeah, you guys are not doing your part. Yeah, sorry. Um <laughs> Um, I actually kind of, I want to open it up for questions now, and maybe we'll come back at the end and we'll wrap up up here, but uh, we've got, well, one mic up now, uh, and if you want to kind of, I know it's a little bit of a pain, but if you want to line up there, it might be a little bit easier. Um, Let's
4: start here. I'd just like you to tell those in the audience that might not know, what is Craig's list? Um, Well, I
3: want to respect the audience and the, uh, you know, our hosts here without getting too much off into uh, tangents. We're basically a simple website for, to where people help each other out with basic everyday needs, mostly getting a job, a place to live, that kind of thing. Uh, operates in a pretty good culture of trust. Uh, traffic has been surging lately for reasons I just don't understand. I have no idea, but for some reason it's gotten a lot greater recently. Uh, me, I do customer service for a living. Although on top of that, my public service suite work I just realized a few days ago, it takes about another 30
4: hours a week on top of that. Oh, there we we'll go. We'll
1: alternate back and forth.
4: So this uh, I'm Jim Fallows in the Atlantic Monthly. I have a question for Craig. I wonder if you could tell us more about how you're designing this immune system you described. And the the, the meta point here is that much of what you all have been describing in terms of, uh, of Transparency involves faith in rationality, data, that if people have the information, they'll use it, and they'll make correct decisions. Whereas at the, the largest level of national politics, most of what we've seen in the past generation goes in the other direction, where facts matter less and less, political positioning matters more and more. It sounds as if you're trying to have a translation of the fact-based world of you know the micro level you're describing to the national level. How are you going to try to do this? This is something the press classically was supposed to do, but for various reasons is, is not, not able to. So tell us more if you would about what you have in mind. This is uh, purely speculative right
3: now. It's an example of where I'm going to try to get other people to do the real work which has commenced. The idea is that you know sometimes people try to uh, you know, build some disinformation, spread it around like uh, issues like uh, where was a guy born, you know, in Hawaii or Kenya. By the way, I've seen a birth certificate which shows I was born in Kenya. <laughs> um, so the deal is, how do you counter this disinformation like that, which, uh, you know, which, you know, there are bad people out there who are really good at doing it. And the only way to do that is to appeal to the people who care to try to get them involved with people who do fact-checking on a professional basis. So the, uh, the deal, and this is purely speculative right now, but observe the people who are already really doing a decent job of fact checking. There's factcheck.org, uh, politifact.com has started off really well. You know, you might take some issues with any of this, but you know, if you look at what they do, they look at a statement that a politician might say, they'll rate it true, half true, false, or my favorite, pants on fire. And, you know, what I'm trying to do is talk to folks try to find out how we can realistically work together to the end of getting a network of people, mostly professionals, but aided by some crowdsourcing, who will, to do the best extent possible, uh, try to do some fact-checking and in real time, and then try to propagate that across the net using social media, Facebook, Twitter, whatever it takes to get honest stuff out there in a hurry. You know, because not only can government use it, but again, the nonprofits uh, could use it. I could use it personally. The idea is to start getting people to work together. One example was recent where uh, Sunlight Foundation, during the healthcare summit, almost in real time, was when someone was speaking, they would show how much that person got from the healthcare industry. Uh, That would be a good thing to do when it comes to a banking and finance And this is genuinely nonpartisan, and actually I view it as a way of reducing the toxic atmosphere of Washington, because if everyone has to start being honest, not exaggerating, you know, just the facts, ma'am, like Joe Friday used to say in Dragnet, and that really dates me, but if we can do this real-time kind of fact-checking in social media, that has a lot of benefits, again, not only the obvious ones of getting honest stuff out there, but When everyone has to be honest, you know, the toxic statements, you know, it's hard to make them in that environment. I can go on and on about this because I I do love the sound of my own voice now and then, but
5: I'm going to stop there. I like the sound of your voice too, Craig. Uh, That's very sweet. Uh,
1: This is one of the uh, white blood cells of the immune system here uh, from the Sunlight Foundation.
5: Yeah, so my client. Um, To what extent do you find a constituency developing, Vivek, Uh, in support of the transparency uh, effort or is it uh, just a group, a relatively small group of uh, not nerds but, and and I ask the question because uh, in the area in which the Sunlight Foundation started which was essentially to try to keep uh, the political process from going too far in the wrong direction by using Justice Brandeis' notion that sunlight is the best of disinfectants, electric, like the best policeman, ergo, people behave better when they think they're being watched. Our first effort was essentially to put on all of the information about political contributions and lobbyists. But that information, as you know, which you don't have control over, is mandated by the Congress, and they don't have it in anything approaching either real time or sufficient detail. So that you're always looking at the horse after the barn door has been opened and they're long gone rather than real time online, which is the mantra that I think works. The question I have for myself, but really for you from the standpoint of the government, you're doing great work. There's so much more to do. There's a lot of obstacles in the way. The obstacles are not gonna get cleared away unless there's enough force coming from the media and the general public to push people, not you, but to help you push people in the right direction. To what extent is there a developing constituency that you perceive? for transparency?
2: So in the last year and a half, um, th- th- there's been some really, really great work that's been happening in the space. Uh, so clearly, the Sunlight Foundation has been a leader uh, in this space. When we launched data.gov, for example, immediately the Sunlight Foundation launched a parallel competition, created a community of developers. But what we also noticed right away was, uh, for example, at the Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute, RPI, uh, Professor Jim Hendler um, led a team of eight students who basically took the data.gov platform and they've created a, a subsystem. And one of the more interesting things that they're doing is they're using these semantic web technologies. Uh, and this wasn't uh, the government stepping in and saying, well, we want to partner with you. But they did this on their own, Uh, and literally, what we're doing now with them is moving towards a world where we're saying, you know what, Uh, in the early days with the World Wide Web Protocol, what you essentially had is the organization of documents, websites. Now what's happening is databases are uh, getting organized. So what the semantic web is going to allow people to do is in the same way you could go to a website website you'll be able to browse databases in a very easy-to-use, intuitive fashion. We've also seen another development, uh, which I think is very, very interesting, is that the private sector uh, is moving into a space that I call data curation. So they're taking data and they're saying, well, how do we make money off of this? How do we actually create uh, economic benefits? So companies like Microsoft and Google, um, are looking at this data and are creating value added services. On top of that, we're seeing a community of uh, researchers looking at this information and trying to find value at the intersection of multiple data sets. Uh, and what we've done on our end from the public sector perspective is I've brought on somebody full time to now start nurturing this, these communities. Actually, not just the developers. Um, in the valley, and in Boston, and uh, uh, all over the country, but also figure out mechanisms how we move as we look at year number two and three um, to really invest heavily on the creation of these communities. One of the ideas we have that we're pursuing is creating a mechanism where we look at the intersection of the transparency movement and data and K through 12. What if students had assignments where they are supposed to do research and use a data.gov platform to talk about a subject or create an online platform uh, that shines light into whether it's a historical event or a scientific breakthrough. Uh, but I think that's gonna be the wave that's really gonna push uh, the government to unleash this uh, data in ways uh, that we can't even imagine. Follow on question. Um, I think the question was slightly
1: more political in nature. Like, do you have support on the Hill for the initiatives that you're having? And maybe most importantly, right now, organizations within the government are putting data on data.gov, like, kind of out of the goodness of their hearts, right? Or out of the because they know President Obama wants them to put data on there, but there's not money built into their budgets to be actively transparent. So, I mean, I guess. My question is, is, there, is there, are there leaders within Congress that you can point to and say they're the ones who are going to push through legislation that's going to make active transparency the norm?
2: Well, uh, this particular issue, when it comes to transparency and open government, has bipartisan support. So if we look at um, the Federal Funding and Transparency Act, Account- Accountability Act, that was a joint effort by President Obama, then Senator Obama, and Senator Coburn. What we've also seen uh, on the Hill is on both sides of the aisle, uh, whether it's in the House or on the Senate, people are very, very supportive um, of a more transparent, open, and participatory government. As a matter of fact, as a part of the fiscal year uh, 2011 and 12 budget, we've put funding in for a transparent and open government. And we've gotten support from both sides of the aisle.
3: I've actually been a little bit involved with the new Transparency Caucus, that's representatives uh, ISA and Quigley, talking to their staffers a fair amount. They're for real. The deal is that when you think you're part of something much bigger than yourself, you get stuff done. And you know, uh, that uh, that ain't bad. The Sunlight Foundation, in fact, is involved in this. Let's take a look at transparencycaucus.org, uh, because we do have something really good going going on there. It's just the beginning. And in the spirit of thinking of something funny after the moment, I'd like to say that one of the first participants in the immune system of democracy will be James Fallows from the
0: Atlantic. (laughs) And someone please tweet that. Charlie Firestone. Uh, I have two comments and then two quick comments. First, I think the, what you're doing with data and transparency in the US government is absolutely terrific, and Craig is totally right that this is unprecedented. However, I'm wondering whether uh, the government is quite as open in dealing with reporters and another aspect of transparency, which is a very important element. So uh, that's just one observation. A second observation that has little fact uh, behind it, at least from a study, is that while the US government is doing a great job, in putting its data uh, online, and we've talked a lot about the U.S., states and local jurisdictions are not doing that same kind of job. Now, you did when you were in District of Columbia, but they, the Knight Foundation commissioned a study that showed that many people are not even following the laws that say they have to make it uh, available. Uh, so that is, a, is an issue, is the state and local level. But my question, and sort of my, I love the immune System uh, is, uh, analogy, but uh, is kind of a penicillin or a steroid, which is uh, I think a consumer in terms of gov- government services doesn't necessarily know what jurisdictions uh, what jurisdiction has authority over a problem that they have, and do you either of you have a solution for a com- uh, developing an app or a service? That starts with a consumer service representative that can go upstream and go across jurisdictions, federal, state, local, and solve the problem, as you would do as a great consumer service representative for Craigslist. Um, the way I would do it, and I'm uh, stealing ideas from 311
3: systems, are that to have both people and apps, which you, uh, you know, put, a, put a problem description in briefly, and then it would lead you to the place which could get you some help. Now, that uh, wouldn't be of a much appeal to a lot of people you know, who would prefer to speak to a person. So just judging by the way I've actually interacted on the phone with San Francisco 311, right now the model is that a person trained to take a call knows where to send a problem to. And of course, that's within the city uh, only. The next step in that, in the sense you're talking, would be for that person to know enough that at least they'll know that when something is a matter of state or federal jurisdiction, and then they can transmit the request electronically to the person in the right jurisdiction who would know, or if they don't know, then they could pass it deeper into the network. I mean, frankly, that's the way some of the underpinnings of the internet work itself, if I may nerd out for a moment. um, You may. But this is the idea is that just to have people talk to each other, share information, internally they'll probably be building wikis and things like that. But this is a, uh, uh, the technology is fairly easy. The deal is that to talk about it, to get people involved, to get into the press, and to remind people that they're potentially part of something much bigger. And you know, Americans, when faced with something much bigger than themselves, Uh, respond to that. And if we believe the sociologists who talk about the millennial generation, this being a new civic generation, the country's ready for that.
2: So on the on the issue of state and local government, um, what's uh, what's happening in that space um, is actually very exciting with the Open 311 um, API initiative in San Francisco. Mayor Newsom and I um, jointly announced that. And part of the other uh, area in that announcement was around how the city of uh, uh, L.A., Washington, D.C., Boston, Chicago, Seattle all came together and agreed upon this common standard. Uh, And what we're doing now at the federal level is we're working uh, with the local government to abstract the complexity. If you think about it, if you want to start a company anywhere in the country right now, And uh, I remember this in my experience uh, working for Governor Kane in the Commonwealth of Virginia. When a small business wanted to start, you had to file paperwork at your local government level, at your county, then at the state level, and then at the federal level. Uh, And the friction of doing that made no sense because everybody was still operating in those silos, sort of that culture of there's a form for that. And part of what we're trying to do is find game-changing approaches Uh, to introduce uh, common standards across the public sector. And on top of that, uh, figure out a way, well, why don't we have a one-stop if you want to start a business? Uh, So we did that in the Commonwealth of Virginia, where you could literally go on one platform and uh, we would walk you through very much like a TurboTax model uh, of business formation. Now imagine all the other services. Uh, The average person doesn't really care whether it's federal, state, or local. It's the government that self organized itself and created these artificial barriers. Technology and sort of these innovations, whether they're in cloud computing or open APIs, now enable us to provide those services in a very easy to use format. And that's sort of the future as we think about uh, deploying these services. Uh, We can't keep continuing to think about this as a federal, state, local level. We need to abstract this complexity. So from an end user perspective, it's one entity.
1: Before we turn over there, I just want to throw a couple of startups that might be models for this sort of thing. Um, there was EveryBlock, which was actually founded by the Knight Foundation, uh, some friends of ours in San Francisco, actually. And um, the biggest problem they found: EveryBlock is a is a website where you go and you type in your address, and it pulls up all of the government data that's available around your address. So that could be, you know, there's a bar going in next door. That could be that you've got a new natural gas pipeline going in, and it shows it all to you sort of uh, centered around your particular uh, address. The biggest problem they found was that every single, if you want that data for every single city, you have to go to every, uh, you know, public um, building in San Francisco and go ask them for that data, oftentimes getting it on hard drives uh, that have been sitting in basements, oftentimes uh, not being able to get access to some of it, and as you push out from, you know, San Francisco, New York, uh, you know, even Denver into smaller and smaller places, the data gets harder and harder to access. So it becomes like a, a very social problem uh, tied in with the technological problem. Um, and the other thing that I, uh, I wanted to mention is in terms of being able to find data based on your question, um, there's a new type of website developing, right? And I'll name check Quora because it's founded by a, a friend of mine. Um, Quora uh, allows you to type in any questions. You say, like, um, what's the best dessert in San Francisco? And along with uh, people answering that question, you'll also get, what's the best ice cream in San Francisco? And I think as, you know, we might be able to get a little algorithmic help from sites like that so that when you come to the government with a query, there'll be, there'll have been, you know, another 100,000 queries that said, when you asked this, what you really meant was that. And I think there's, there's some hope uh, on the Silicon Valley technology side
4: of things. Don Spiro, Bethesda, Maryland. Uh, thank you all for a really interesting panel. And I want to thank Craig, uh, especially for Craigslist. It has really helped my wife and I get a lot of things out of our house. We're probably not responsible for the boom in your current usage, but uh, it's been very helpful. And by the way, you meet really interesting people through Craigslist. That, that's been an unexpected benefit. Um, my question is about geographically uh, related data. That's been mentioned a few times. Um, about 70% of these huge databases that you're unlocking uh, and, and democratizing have uh, a location component, either latitude, longitude, or just an address. And the example you just gave is, is one of those. Um, my question is, are there specific technological impediments to getting those things out and democratized and are there uh, privacy issues because of the tension between uh... location-based uh, uh... data in in phones now and uh... the sensitivity of that when it comes to an individual person uh... right now we seem to be leaving that up to google in terms of of a menu selections and preferences. Is that sufficient and is that tension real or just imagined?
2: Well, well I think um, when you think of geotagging or geodata, uh, it fundamentally changes the notion of privacy. So for example, it used to be that uh, personally identifiable information uh, basically meant you know your name, uh, your age, social security number, with a number of other elements. But now, uh, given the volume of information that's out there, this is one of the considerations we have to think about uh, as we consider the mosaic effect, which is combining a number of uh, data sets and geo-information to identify whether it's people or information that normally wouldn't be identified. Uh, This is an issue uh, we deal with uh, with data.gov as we decide which data is released versus which data sets are not released. Uh, And agencies spend a lot of time deliberating as they think through what are the the possible combinations um, as far as these data sets are are concerned. But uh, geotagging and geodata absolutely um, is a a concern. Um, But uh, that's why I said, you know, there's not a a single framework or a blunt instrument that would define what what data set is sensitive in nature versus what is, and that's why we'll look at them on a case-by-case
4: basis.
3: There's a lot of moving targets in privacy these days. Uh, Geotagging does expose some new issues. Bigger issues are the uh, generation gap in views of privacy. There's, uh, you know, the youngsters like Mark Zuckerberg who do have a much different idea of openness and privacy than, uh, you know, guys in our declining years like uh, Vivek and myself or James.
6: Yeah, I had a question for Vivek. Um, Vivek, do you think you'll be making any progress increasing transparency in relation to post-secondary education? Um, There was recently a documentary on PBS Frontline, College Inc. Did you by chance see it?
2: i haven 't seen it yet no. it,
6: it basically profiled the fact that the federal government is giving out something like thirty billion dollars of Pell grants and tens of billions of dollars of other direct payments to colleges and universities um, and a number of the uh, for example for profit college and universities get something like <coughs> excuse me seventy five or eighty percent of their total revenue from the federal government and yet when you go to websites like college navigator or the nces database it's virtually impossible for a consumer to see you know what are the actual graduation numbers of these colleges what are our outcomes what are we getting for our tax dollars and so that's the specific question is what are you doing if anything to increase transparency in relation to the tens of billions of dollars of federal money that are flowing to uh, all colleges and universities, but particularly the for-profit ones. Thank you.
2: Sure, so um, I think you raise a really good point uh, which is also applicable in healthcare. care. Um, I used to talk about how you know, it was very easy for me to go online and uh, compare uh, whether it's cars um, in terms of gas mileage and zero to 60 than it was one hospital to the other, or outcomes. Uh, And same thing in education. One of the challenges we've seen at the local level is a lot of the investments that have been made in uh, performance systems haven't yielded the benefits, so those systems have unfortunately failed. So part of what we're doing in direct relation to the Open Government Directive is that the Department of Education has put forward a very aggressive uh, open government plan. And we've also are uh, looking at how we can tie grant funding directly to the open government directive to be able to say, look, this funding that's uh, being allocated requires that you're open, transparent around the performance, the outcomes. But what we've seen, unfortunately, is at the local level, a lot of the, a lot of the systems that have been uh, built uh, haven't really published a lot of this information that we would want. So we're working closely with the the National Association of uh, State CIOs to figure out how do we uh, open up those databases.
1: These are probably the last two questions over here.
7: Thank you. My name is Bob Massey, and my question has to do with uh, how government... Can encourage transparency in other influential organizations. So, for example, I've been very involved in a project called the Global Reporting Initiative, which sets standards for uh, companies but voluntarily for companies on environmental, social, and governance issues, which are now in use by about 2,000 uh, companies worldwide. And the SEC has just taken a step to encourage companies to disclose their. Um, risks related to climate. So there are various ways in which government can encourage influential parties, corporations being one example, but of course there are others, to increase their transparency as part of this general movement. Am I, I'm just curious about w- what steps uh, you might think should be taken or are being taken. Um, if government wants to influence private industry ma- in that manner,
3: the uh, deal is largely to just, just start being open in that manner, providing useful data, and making that very, very visible and very obvious to create a, a cultural change in which the expectation is that people are transparent in the sense that I mentioned. You tell people what's going on until it becomes stupid.
2: Well, we've also seen, by the way, um, since we've launched a number of these initiatives, whether it's the IT dashboard or data.gov, the open government directive, there's been a lot of interest from other countries. Mm -hmm. So we've had other countries come in and visit us to take this framework and apply it to other nation states. Uh, We're also working with the United Nations to figure out how do we create a race-to-the-top agenda around open government. Uh, So a, a number of countries have actually followed uh, the governments leading the United States, like the UK with their data.gov and Australia and a number of other countries that, uh, that are building uh, along that framework. And then as you think about the semantic web technologies that I was talking about, where it gets really interesting is when you start thinking of transparency not just at the local level but at the global level.
7: Thank you.
8: hi i 'm Charles Jennings. <clears throat> a little bit of a cold excuse me first, you did some great work in washington d c with exposing nine one one data really for the first time uh, of any large metropolitan area. We consumed that data It was very valuable and I want to commend you on that. but my question has to do with the lack of situational awareness in the gulf there 's a editorial interestingly enough in this morning 's Aspen news one of the two dailies in Aspen. I I don't understand that. Denver has one, Aspen has two, but uh, it was very critical of the Obama administration on the issue of transparency in activity in the Gulf. I've also heard, uh, I remember memorably, uh, Carville and Matlin agreeing, rarely, on the lack of situational awareness when they went down there and covered the area. It's been a refrain from government, state and local government, what is going on, how come we don't know more are the plumes down under the sea? Why can't we fly over? And that it, it, it seems to me very legitimate uh, complaints, given the severity of the problem, and inconsistent with the Obama administration's general policy on openness. Can you comment on that?
2: Sure. So yesterday, we actually launched uh, RestoreTheGulf.gov, and part of that launch was actually putting out on data.gov a dedicated section around uh, restoring the Gulf, data sets dedicated to that, to be much more transparent and open about that. So that's actually online now, um, information that, uh, that was being compiled and published. How, how much can you
8: influence? Oh, sorry, go ahead. How come it took so long to get that out? I mean, I how, what I is it, know. 90 days now or something? Or? The,
3: the deal is in the federal government, the uh, public information officers, stuff like that. Um, are coming from a cultural habit of controlling information very closely. The current administration is working really hard on getting people to open up to the extent where people have actually asked me for help. And the deal is that this kind of cultural change takes a long time. There's really good leadership at the top and in the federal grassroots, rank and file employees, there's a lot of people who believe it and who are trying to make it happen. But cultural change takes a while and is uh, sometimes a little painful.
4: Yeah, Vivek,
1: I mean, how much can you influence how much information is released by a, a given agency?
2: Well, I mean, what we have been able to do with the Open Government Directive is exactly, not just influence, but direct agencies to make information available. But, but we have to be mindful of a couple of constraints. One of those constraints is the backend systems, as I mentioned earlier that uh, may not be robust enough to handle the demand side. And what I mean by that is the Patent and Trademark Office is a perfect example. Uh, If they decided to make all that information available right away without any investments, uh, their operational systems would begin to crash. So they couldn't perform their core mission. Uh, Secondly, what we have to be mindful of is the mosaic effect, that it takes time to make sure that the government isn't accidentally releasing information that may be sensitive uh, as far as privacy is concerned or national security. Because the best way to kill an initiative like data.gov would be to release information accidentally that uh, violated the privacy of the American people or uh, compromised national security in any way. That's why some of these initiatives in terms of democratizing this data takes longer than what uh, most people would expect. So just to kind of to wrap up, um, how do we actually, we're building all these wonderful
1: tools, we're putting all of this data out there, um, but when we go and, and look at the actual usage numbers uh, for a lot of these things, um, they don't quite match up with the perceived demand for transparency in, in the American public. Um, so like on data.gov, you know, not all the data sets are used very often. Um, and I, I wonder, and you know, just from both of you. How do we increase the demand uh, for transparency like in a real way, people actually using the data and and acting as watchdogs or or innovators with government data?
2: Well, well, I think two things. And what I'd like to do is uh, use two examples. Uh, So one is producing results so that you're not just shining light, but the act of shining light uh, leads to uh, tangible, specific results. And what I mean by that is when we launched the IT dashboard, Uh, Shortly after that, at the Veterans Administration, we halted 45 IT projects, and we ended up terminating 12 of those projects. And last week, we announced a halt on uh, major financial systems, over $3 billion annually, to make sure that taxpayer dollars were not being wasted. Secondly, have an impact on the everyday lives of the American people. So I just had a baby who is about 44 days old now. And as part of that, what I did is I used an app that was built. It's a product recall app. And what this application (laughs) allows you to do is, uh, as you're in a store, um, you could actually scan a product. And as I was buying um, a crib, uh, or as I was looking for a car seat, the ability to scan that product and see whether it's been recalled or not, or search to see if uh, a specific drug or food uh, has issues. That data set, that information at my fingertips when I'm about to make these decisions is very, very helpful. And what we've done on data.gov, by the way, is we've made sure that people can also rate data sets in terms of usability and so forth. So, So we're very transparent also about the usability of the data sets and how popular they are.
3: A lot of it has to do with producing results with data you know, again, as simple as showing when the next uh, Muni train is coming. And beyond results, the idea is to get the word out there, to create the air of uh, expectation that when you've got to do something and you've got to find something out, it has a chance of being there. It's going to take years, so we've got to give people a break, but the idea is to uh, start talking about all these efforts. The idea is that people here, uh, I'd like you to, to uh, tweet about this occasionally. Talk about it in Facebook. Point people, if I may uh, say, to sunlightfoundation.com. It is .com, right? Okay. Sunlightfoundation.com, because real things are happening, but the only way they can really happen is to create a self-fulfilling prophecy that they will happen, and everyone here could be uh, part of that. Beyond that, we need, again, more reporting more people talking about what uh, James likes to call the immune system of democracy, <laughs> which would be a great title article in some kind of smart magazine.
1: <laughs> Craig Newmark okay. and Rebecca Hundra, by thank the, you.
3: By the oh. way, remember, good night, folks, and tip the waiter as well. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs>